Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 3. This is Episode 3 of The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. So today we're going to be talking, Whitney and I, are, are going to be talking about Father Zosima and Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov. So the two fathers of the, of the novel, well, two of the three, uh, Ilyushinka's father, Whiskbroom, uh, will we'll make a feature in the Minor Characters episode. But really, these are the two fathers, uh, literal and spiritual for Alyosha, who, as we said in episode two, is the main character as defined by the author's note. So uh, Dmitri Mitya um, is, in a way, a, a protagonist of the novel, main main character of the novel. I would say, if you had to say, who is this novel about... In many ways, it's about him because he's the one that gets put on trial. He's the one that probably has the most um, the most screen time, if you will. Um, Ivan is actually the least featured of the three, but I think it's his um, his mindset and his um, like uh, you know the the great intellectual man. It, it's really like he is the foil to Alyosha more so than Dmitri. Um, I was just going to jump in and say um, Ivan hijacks the novel a few times because he writes whole chapters, you know. He's he's kind of the author of parts of the novel. So that makes him feel very prominent, even though he's not in as much of the book. And he's a very silent man, so in general he doesn't speak much. Um, whereas Dimitri's a very voluble you know, talkative man. So he just hijacks the novel every time he's in the scene because he never stops talking, similar to his father. Right. And it's interesting that you say that because really to understand the the three sons, you have to understand the father. Um, And so that's why we wanted to go ahead and do the fathers first before we talked about the sons. Um, So obviously we we will uh, delve into Dimitri and Ivan and Alyosha, Alexei. See, I don't even want to call him Alexei. I just want to call him Alyosha, which is interesting that I always call Ivan Ivan. Like, I never think... He doesn't have a um, cute nickname or anything. Like, is that once or something? It's It's, it's hardly ever. He's not the type of man you want to call a diminutive, a nickname. Exactly. And so, and, and Theodore is actually the same way. Um... No one seems to ever call him anything but Fyodor Pavlovich. Who has affection for him in the world? Like, it's up to Alyosha, whose affection comes from within his own heart and spirit. Not, right. it's not. He doesn't give affection because people deserve it. That's what's so special about him. Yeah, because he's he is just a conduit for Christ's love, for that agape, unconditional love. I think some people would think that is cold. Like, oh, I want you to give me affection because you like me specifically and all my individuality, not because you're just a generally affectionate person, but part of what this novel is helping us remember is that none of us are worthy of that affection. Like, am I worth it? Is this question that's really key in the Father's Osama part keeps coming up. Am I worth it? And that's just a question that has humility at its root. Whereas, I want you to like me for me is seems like it has pride at yes. its root. Well, you know, 
this idea of like who even likes me for me if they knew everything that I've ever done, if they knew every sin I've ever committed, no one would like me. The only person that likes me is God. <laughs> yeah. And it's because he created me and he is able to withstand my brokenness, my sinfulness, my failures because he he corrects me in those things because they hurt me and they hurt other people. And I think Alyosha is not quite to the level of correcting people like to the level that Pazazosima is, but um, but that all that to say, you know, this idea of like Whitney and I have learned, you know, as many people have told us, like you will learn a whole new dimension to faith being parents uh, because when I think about my love for Josephine, it is unconditional, but in a very specific way. It's like I, I like her for her. I I don't like anyone else's child the way I like my own child, and it's not it's not because she's so special. It's it's because God gave her to me, and He didn't give me someone else's child. So it's like I'm I'm just learning her, and and everything that I've you know, learn about her if it like let's say she has a tantrum. Uh not that Josephine's a big tantrum thrower, but um but like if she if she gets really upset about something because she can't have her way, you know, I wanna teach her why having her way in that moment is hurtful to her. Um and and she will eventually, hopefully, grow out of that and, and be able to say, Dad was right or mom was right. Um and I think that that's, you know, Alyosha is getting to that level um, similar to, you know, being just like further down the road on the same level of agape love. It's not, it's not an impersonal love. It's a love that has no conditions, meaning even if you smack someone in the face and then immediately after say, I really need you to take me to the airport, they're going to do it. Right. And that's I mean, I think most parents can attest to their children have smacked them in the face, either literally or figuratively, and they still, you know, act out of love for them. And, so, you know, some don't. And Fyodor Pavlovich is a great example of that. But um, but th- that's that's kind of what Zosima is teaching Alyosha, which is weird as where does storge love, like familial love, where does that come from? It doesn't, uh, I, I don't think it originates in um, just being a parent. I think it, it has to come from the source of love, the origin of love, which is the Trinity and, and the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I like this direction that you're taking it down just because I think it's so suited to Zosima's teaching. Um, like he talks about active love, that if you feel doubts about God or you feel as if you don't really have the capacity to be a servant or be a loving person, just show active love. Just start somewhere and do something and stop worrying about kind of working up your feelings. That's what he tells um, Madam Kulikov. But I think that what you're saying about parents you know, as parents, we can start to experience what it feels like just in this tiny fraction of what it feels like to be be God and show God's love to all human beings. 
because when you have a little baby, that baby cannot do anything for you. And you have to show such active love to that little baby, like all the time to keep it alive. So you just learn that and you feel you're like, I'm responsible and you just instinctively want to do it. Except in those disturbing cases like Peter Pavlovich, where that instinct fails and they don't want to do that. But it, there's nothing to pat yourself on the back about as a parent in a way, because I think it's just built into us. It's like a little bit of how God's image can shine through us is when we're parents and we just show active love to someone who can't do anything in return. A little baby can't even like say, I love you and give you a hug and a kiss. Like Josephine is in a stage right now where she'll give us a little hug and a kiss. It's very sweet and rewarding when I've just like done something to help her. And then she gives me a little hug and a kiss. I'm like, you know, my, my heart melts, but parenting starts where you, you care about every little detail about the person and you feel ultimately so responsible for that person. And so some is teaching that everyone's responsible for everyone else. I mean, it's not, Dostoevsky understood that that's not possible on earth because there's just too many people and we're too limited and it's overwhelming which is why we focus in on a little circle of people in our lives to be responsible for like our family and our close friends and maybe our, our neighbors. Um, but ultimately in eternity, that's the vision is that everyone's responsible for everyone else because you're treating everyone like they're your family member or your close friend, like that you would step in and help in any way that you could if they were hurting or in need or, and you just like to pay attention to them and learn about them. And, you know, this goes back to what we're talking about. I think it was episode one about the argument that Fetchikovich makes, which is basically fatherhood is the key to everything. That good fathers make sons that and daughters <laughs> that don't want to murder them <laughs> and that murdering a parent is the worst, the worst sin or the worst crime you could commit. And, of course, within Christianity... All sin is equal. All sin is evil. Not all sin has the same repercussions. And so the degree to which a sin can hurt someone can be different, but the degree to which it hurts God is equal, if that makes sense. So um, so this idea of fatherhood, I think, you know, the brothers Karamazov, I think I mentioned it already, um, but that's implying that the brothers have parentage. And so uh, the novel starts with basically Theodore as a character and who he was and who he became and why he married the two women that he married. So um, let's just start there. I, I have several things marked in the first couple of chapters there, but um, when you just, just talk about Theodore and, and his marriages, you know, the first first three chapters or so of the novel, what, what did you, what did you think of those and the details that you got? Well, there's an emphasis in the first few chapters on Fyodor Pavlovich being an actor, um, not being genuine, liking to make an effect, make a scene, things like that. Um, I think that genuineness is quite important in this novel. And I think that part of what Father Zosima is teaching Alyosha is to be genuine, and that's, in fact, what he says to Fyodor Pavlovich. Just just be honest with yourself. Above all, be honest with yourself. Yeah. That's, you know, an utterly at the heart of everything. Fyodor Pavlovich is not introspective enough 
to fully understand himself. I think he has little gleams of understanding, but he doesn't really act on them. He acts a role and acts a part. Um, I say that about his marriage in relation to his marriages because it seems to me that even his marriages were to some degree um, acting a role or acting a part. So that's like a part of his character. Yes. Let's have an elopement, like let, like something that would happen in a novel. Yes. Rescuing yes. this girl from her evil uh, benefactor. He, he's doing these dramatic things just for the sake of doing a dramatic thing, it almost seems like. Yes. And that's part of where you see Mitya come through. Like his his character come through Mitya because I think Mitya also has a real flair for the dramatic and he wants to set up a scene and play a role. And so um that's part of what I noticed about all of his early behavior, even the description of his marriages, is that he likes to play roles. Um so yeah, I don't know if you have any follow up to that, but well, I have several points. I'm actually going to start with Grushinka and then work my way back to, <laughs> to Fyodor. Um, Grushinka, as we're going to talk about on the episode about the women, I, I think she is a Brett Ashley character. So I, I always use Brett Ashley from The Silence of Rises as my standard because there is just a, a, a strain of woman or type of woman or, or, or um, life stage of woman where they have received intense um, either either um, disavowal or uh, pain or rejection or um, or, or just a lack of lack of love um, or, or they've been on the receiving end of someone else's anxiety and they just turn into, someone who, who just channels that into the other people. And so um, I think Fyodor is the same. I actually think he is similar to Grishinka. I think that's why he's attracted to her. I actually think that's why Dimitri is attracted to her mm-hmm. as well. They can They're, be comfortable with her because they understand exactly. her and she understands them. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, a, there's a sense of Dimitri didn't know, know his mom because she died so young. I mean, he was three when she died. So um, knowing his dad, even though he has this incredibly thorny relationship with his dad that's never trustworthy, never loyal, never happy, really, it makes sense that like people marry uh, into a situation sometimes where the, the spouse they're marrying is similar to one of their parents. And usually the parent with whom they have a more strained dynamic relationship because they already have that parent with whom they, they have a really cordial, uh, happy relationship. And so you, yeah. you almost like don't need a knockoff dad if you have a great you know, relationship with dad or you don't yeah. need a knockoff mom. You, know, you, you want someone to complement what you already have. Like replaying the strained relationship with your parent in a way that you're like, I can get affection this time. Uh, don't you think, just to, this is so connected to what you're saying, I'll throw it in here. Don't you think that Katerina Ivanovna is similar to Dmitri's mother in personality? Yes. yes. And so um, there's this element of he, 
it's almost like he's programmed to need to be dutiful to a woman who's similar to his mom. Whereas he is almost like he has this ideal that he could he could tame the shrew, so to speak. He he could he you know, he he could get Brett Ashley to stop sleeping around. He could get you know, he, he could get this thing permanently um, if he only could do it in, in her way. Does that make sense? What like, you mean about Katarina or Grushenka? Well, I'm talking about Grushenka. Yeah, yeah, okay. In, in in relation to Theodore, it's almost like yeah, yeah. If he could just out dad his dad, yeah, his dad would love him because like Dimitri laughs when Alyosha tells him the story about this horrible meeting between Katarina and Grushenka. Alyosha was horrified by this interaction between the two of them, where Grushinka humiliates Katerina on purpose, um, holds her hand and says, maybe I won't kiss your hand, and then tells her that she knows about how Katerina went to Dimitri's apartment and went for money anyway. Alyosha's horrified by the whole interaction, and he tells Dimitri what happened, and Dimitri just starts laughing hysterically, and... It's like he's saying, that Grushinka, what a wildcat she is. What a yeah. card. She's the worst. She Hanging's too good for her, he says. Yeah. Um, he gets a kick out of her being so kind of mean and mischievous. Right, and right. he's like, I think there's some something about a person like um, the elder, <laughs> Karamazov and Dimitri, that don't want to be with someone who's going to be judging them all the time. Yes. Want to be on, like, yes. the moral, you know, even ground with someone like Grushinka. And Katerina is some sort of aspirational ideal of, like, someone who wants to reform him. But do you really want to be with someone who wants to reform you all the time? And then he actually sees through her in a way I believe is accurate. He, both Dimitri and Ivan say, it's pride. Everything Katerina does is it the root of it is pride it's yes. it's not anything noble she needs to feel as if she's the victim because she takes pride in being the victim for some yes. reason yes. so she's the victim of dimitri's unfaithfulness you know she she is almost preying upon dimitri trying to make him feel like he's ungrateful and he's failing her so she can feel better and better about herself. Right. And, and, and it comes out of this, um, you know, this servility or whatever the word is where she had to approach him for the first time, not as an equal, Mm -hmm. but as a, as a desperate woman. And I, I just think there's something to that. I think that some people spend the rest of their lives trying to get the upper hand on someone in terms of like have the moral high ground on someone. Um, I certainly have seen it in situations in my life, but um, that's just, you know, I, I really think that is one of the most cancerous things to a person's spirit is to always be trying to, have control, be the sober-minded one in, in the room full of drunks so that you can seem holy by comparison. Um, I think that holiness comes out of baseness, right? I mean, that you can only be holy insofar as you admit your baseness 
without God. And um, it's interesting that the narrator starts the novel with the description about, um, he says, Alexei Fyodorovich Karamazov was the third son of a landowner, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, Fyodor Pavlovich, for instance, started with next to nothing. He was a very small landowner. He ran around having dinner at other men's tables. He tried to foist himself off as a sponger. And yet at his death, he was discovered to have as much as 100,000 rubles in hard cash. At the same time, he remained all his life one of the most muddle-headed madcaps in our district. Again, I say it was not stupidity. Most of these madcaps are rather clever and shrewd, but precisely muddle-headedness, even a special national form of it. And so this idea of um, he is not in his right mind, and that's what makes him the way he is. It's that he's, he's not stupid. He's, like, like Whitney has already brought up, he has, he has gotten so clouded in his mind with his own lies that he doesn't know what truth is anymore. And, and I think that that's a huge contrast between uh, Fyodor Pavlovich and Zosima. Zosima is, is so clear about what is truth and what is not that it, it, he's, he's, he's really just like a, a more mature version of Alyosha. He doesn't disdain the, the, the lies he has pity for those that, that fall into lies. He has, he has compassion because he realizes that his sin caused the world to fall to the same degree that Adam and Eve's sin did. And so there's this concept of you're responsible for everyone else's brokenness. I mean, that's, that is such a hard point of view to come to. Because you say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. And I think we're all guilty of doing that, which, of course, means we're all guilty of judging someone else's worth in God's eyes, uh, which, of course, means we, we think we're God. And so when we say, well, that person's worse, worse than I am, well, we're playing God and saying, I, I know for certain. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas God says, you are worse than Jesus, but I'm trading... I, like, I, I'm willing to give up Jesus on the cross to get you. And there's a big difference between saying, oh, you're the worst, but like I'm a good person, so I'm going to have compassion on you, which is what Katerina does. Um, She's like, I'll save you. Come be pray to me, and I'll be your God, she even says. Whereas what Alyosha does to say his father, which is tries to have pity and compassion on his weaknesses and see the best in him if possible. Like, there's at one point, uh, Fyodor says, this is when um, Alyosha goes to see his father the morning after Dimitri has beaten him up. And his father is in a bad mood, and he is worried about how ugly he's going to look if Grushinka comes to see him. And so he keeps rearranging his bandages on his face, like, how bad is it? Like, how bad do I look? And staring in the mirror, he's just super grumpy. Um, and he's being mean to Alyosha, even though Alyosha's there to ch- check on him and is being tenderhearted. And Alyosha says something to him like, you don't have an evil nature. It's just been distorted. So I think that's important. I think that's how God sees us through Christ. It's like, yes. you don't, I made you. 
I didn't make you with an evil nature, right? Like right. where you're evil through and through and you couldn't help it and you're always going to have to be that or something. No, like God sees you as distorted by sin, but he also sees the potential for what you could be otherwise, the, the vision for what you will be when you're redeemed fully and transformed in eternity. Yes, if you want to think of it in terms of guitar, which I'm going to, it's as if God sends the signal from the guitar of creation, of creating people, it, which is clean. The guitar, the, the guitar just has its own tone. But the sin, uh, the original sin of Adam and Eve, immediately distorts it such that before it even gets to the amp, you can't hear the clean tone. And so the clean tone is there. That's what's inside of the distortion. If, if you just hit a distortion pedal and, and send it through the amp and there's no guitar playing to it, there's no sound. And so it, it's like the only way to get clean guitar out of a, a, a guitar that's going through a distortion pedal is to, is to have some sort of program where you can take away all the tone that is dirtying the tone and somehow ha- like like have the clean tone. Um, and so that I know that that sounds ridiculous, but I'm sure it's possible these days with computers. And so um, just that idea of like that's what Christ does to us is he gives us back the tone that, that God gave us, which is, like what he said, our dignity, our, our, our pure-heartedness, our ability to submit to God. And, and, you know, he does so by doing it himself on earth, teaching it in his, in his ministry, and then, of course, dying and resurrecting on the cross. That, that gives us access to a clean, you know, a, a, a clean purity that we just cannot attain no matter how isolated we get or how um you know how how like uh, in our own mind uh, in our wits so to speak like like sober-minded we we can be the the sin of the world just corrupts and and um i think that Fyodor pavlovich is a great example of someone who has just become incredibly corrupted by the sin of the world in addition to his own sin um, and I, I read this from the last part of the first chapter. It says, in most cases, people, even wicked people, are far more naive and simple-hearted than one generally assumes, and so are we. And I think that that's, the older I get, and obviously I'm going to, you know, if I live a lot longer, I'll be much older than this, but I think that I see that more clearly now than I did. Even when I tried to read this book, I think it was like 2013, so about, Oh, almost 10 years ago um, but that I see that more clearly now and I, I think I see especially having a child I see that adults are not so much more developed morally, spiritually um, than children and therefore everything that we see as like intellectual development and physical development Sometimes someone can develop incredibly physically or, or intellectually but have no spiritual development. And, and Alyosha is, of course, 
by far the most spiritually developed of the three brothers. He's also the youngest, and he's way more spiritually developed than his father, which means he got it from something other than his father. And I think that that's, going back to the Fechikovich speech at the end of the trial, his point is right that fathers should be teaching their children about God, how to love God, how much God loves them, why to fear God, what fearing God looks like, and, and just why obedience to God is better than disobedience. And, and Zosima you know, does that to an extent for Alyosha, and obviously those lessons are going to have to come through Alyosha to Dmitri or to Ivan. Um, but I think that that's, that's part of the novel. It's like it's saying that fathers teach children so that those children can be fathers to new people. And, of course, at the end of the novel, Alyosha is, in a way, like a spiritual father to the children that are at Alyushinka's funeral. Yeah, there's a sense in this novel that there's a surrogate fatherhood that can come through connections of faith. Um, Alyosha seems to have had a, an instinctive... You know, people have different natures, and he seems to have had an instinctive um, draw toward God. Like... Love, a love for God that didn't have to be kind of like wrung out of him. <laughs> and I would even argue that um, Dimitri has some of that instinctive love for God as well, but Dimitri has such powerful temptations um, pulling at him all the time too. Um, but the book presents it as if it might be the case that Alyosha's mother praying for him so fervently, he has one memory of his mother and she's praying for him fervently before... Um, a picture of the mother of God. And I was just reading that in Russia, the mother in the Orthodox Church, the mother of God, Mary, um, is associated with this all-encompassing love and forgiveness. And so she kind of dedicated Alyosha to the mother of God and to this ideal of all-forgiving love and forgiveness and that that was instilled within him as a baby and it's carried on through his life in a special way. Um, it is somewhat part of his personality to want to love and forgive, and then that's being further developed as he seeks God. Um, but yeah, I, what you were saying about um, people don't change as much as you might have thought from being little toddlers to being adults, and that there's like a simplicity and naivete in people that you wouldn't suspect even when they're you know bad people. I think that made me realize that I think what we do often is just learn to hide our selfish impulses and, and tantrums. Like sometimes inside I'm still having a tantrum when I'm out and about in the world, but I just know how to hide it as I'm an adult. But inside I'm still having a tantrum because I'm having some of the same emotions that I had when I was a toddler. They're still welling up inside of me. One of the things that I've learned from teaching this class called I Second That Emotion is that um, wrath, which you know we think of as like intense anger, actually begins at this very <laughs> seemingly innocuous annoyance, and and even that is like a more intense version of like discomfort, I guess. And so uh, I'm gonna pull up Plutchik's Wheel of Emotions just to confirm. But but I think Whitney brings up a great point, which is like. She often tells me, like, oh, something annoying happened. 
But when she tells me it was annoying, I, I kind of know that, like, in that moment, she wasn't just like, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's a little bit frustrating. It's like you might have gotten, like, this almost, like, in, impulsive need to just, like you said, have a tantrum. But because you've learned how to, like, control that as an adult, and obviously at, as a child growing into an adolescent, growing into an adult, you sometimes can can discredit the intensity of the emotion mm-hmm. because your filter is so strong, and because I'm afraid of strong emotion, as we've <laughs> we've yeah. determined just talking among ourselves and trying to figure out ourselves. But I don't want to come home and say something made me so angry today because that doesn't feel good to me to think I got very angry. Instead, yeah. I'll say something annoying happened today. The truly annoying things like. I had to wait in a long line at the grocery store. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever is really just annoying. I don't even mention because it's not that big of a deal. When I come home and say something annoying happened today, I probably mean I heard someone being really disrespectful to me or another person or God. Like It's like something big that actually right. would make me angry and full of wrath. And I'm trying to minimize it because I've told myself I should and shouldn't let myself have temper tantrums and... One thing that's great about Alyosha and that I think makes him a, a saint, so to speak, is that he seems authentic. Mm-hmm. He seems to let out his emotions but and not be hiding, but also to be genuinely having a godly, loving emotion toward yeah. people most of the time. You know, I was thinking about what you were saying about uh, Dimitri in relation to Alyosha, and I actually think Ivan, I think Ivan has high expectations for God. Yeah. And I think that that's a great impulse because he has that same mother as Alyosha. So he has this, um, this expectation that God is something so powerful, so controlling, so, or so in control, so, so, um, ben, uh, benevolent that I, I think he just can't handle that life is not perfect. And, mm-hmm. and, um, it's an idealist. And, right. And, and, and that's, you know, I think a lot of people in that place where they, they, they do, they do believe in God because, they're too angry at him to, to act as if it's, mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I do not believe in aliens. Like if aliens exist, I guess I'll be surprised. But to me, it's, it's like, a, a, you know, the, it doesn't, it never occurs to me to think, Oh my gosh, that could have been an alien, you know, or, or this sense of like, I'm going to get really angry when people believe in aliens. It's like, well, I just, I just am certain they don't exist, and it's like I don't, you know. Well, some people say, okay, the belief in God has caused all of these problems right. and distortions, so I, I need to, I'm really angry that people believe in God because, you know, look at all this. And, in fact, Fyodor Pavlovich says that same argument. Um, it's that night right before Dimitri bursts in, I think it's that night where they're sitting around talking and Smirjikov is being heretical and everything. Um, Fyodor Pavlovich says, we should just shut the monasteries down and just destroy the whole church, get rid of it. 
Um, and I think Ivan asked them why. And yeah. he says, well, because, you know, surely it's better for people to just believe in whatever's true. Like, it shouldn't be going around, people shouldn't be going around believing in lies. Something to that effect. he says something like, if it's not true, then the worst offenders are yeah, the, the monks are the yeah. worst people. The, like, the monks are the worst people if Christianity's not true because yes. they're sponging off everybody else, yes. right? We're all giving them money, and they're living off the support of every. Which, I mean, I guess it's true, right? Like, it's kind of right. similar in a way to the way that Paul says, hey, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christians are the most pitiable people of all. Like, yes. The argument that says, oh, what harm does it do? Just believe whatever you want to believe. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, you know. Could make people better people to just believe in God and maybe it would make them a better person because they think there's going to be some kind of punishment in heaven. Maybe it's, like, functionally good. You almost have to appreciate Ivan for rejecting that train of thought. And he's like, well, let's try to be... I think he and Fyodor Pavlovich are saying in that moment, like, let's try to be honest. If it's not true, then we shouldn't be endorsing pretending that it's true just for the sake of keeping the peasants somewhat moral or something, like whatever purpose it would be serving to have an idea of God around if no one believes it. But then um, Ivan says something to his dad in response like, well, if the truth was to prevail, you'd be the first victim. Like, if truth was to right. prevail, you'd be the first one. Because um, I think that uh, Fedor had been saying, yeah, if we all decided to just get rid of the church, we could go take all the money from the monks, and, and that'd be awesome. And then I was like, yeah, but if if the truth that there's no God was going to prevail, you'd be the first one. Everybody come rob you. Yes, and then yes. you you probably get destroyed by it by the whole thing, and then he says, "Okay, yeah, better keep it as it is." <laughs> it's both Ivan and Fyodor acknowledging in that moment that other people believing in God protects us because it keeps them from just killing us because they want to take our money or because we're not bringing things to the world or right. whatever reason they might have for wanting to kill us. I mean, Ivan does hate his father. He says, let one lizard devour another when Dimitri comes in and just a few minutes later and starts, you know, beating savagely right. on Fyodor. He's like, let them kill each other. I don't care. And I do want to go into, um, a, you know, a, a pretty deep dive into, like, to what extent is Ivan actually willing the murder of his father in the Ivan episode um, but, you know, th- there's so much overlap between the, the father and the three sons yeah. that we're just, we're just going to, like, go down those uh, those avenues. But before we get there, I wanted to talk about this idea of uh, Dimitri's mother dies. And it says, just, w- just then his wife's family received news of her death in Petersburg. She died somehow suddenly in some garret of typhus, according to one version, of starvation, according to another. Fyodor Pavlovich was drunk when he learned of his wife's death, and the story goes that he ran down the street, lifting his hands to the sky and joyfully shouting, Now lettest thou servant depart in that now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. And I just there's something about Dostoevsky's ability to make me envision the scene. And I just see this man running with his arms up like a touchdown, you know, a gesture. And, and he is just, like, 
uh, chariots of fire style. Like he's thrown his head up in ecstasy and he's like, she's dead. Um, but then it says others say that he wept and sobbed like a little child so much so that they say he was pitiful to see however repulsive they found him. And then the narrator says both versions may very well be true. <laughs> but um, there's something about like his reaction to his first wife dying, which by the way, it says that um, it says that she, uh, where is it? Um, it says, finally, she fled the house and ran away from Fyodor Pavlovich with a destitute seminarian leading the three-year-old, leading the three-year-old Mitya in his hands. Fyodor Pavlovich immediately set up a regular harem in his house and gave himself to the most unbridled drinking. And so I think that, you know, we, we've talked about, like, how people consider God, and one of the, one of the places where people most consider God is in grief. And whether it's grief of losing someone to death or whether it's someone, um, you know, something traumatic like your spouse leaving you um, or cheating on you or, or whatever it is, um, Fyodor Pavlovich just just goes headfirst into, into debauchery. And, you know, when you see people that are addicted to things and we, we, you know, we know some addicts very well, they are, they are responding to their brokenness by trying to cope with it through the addiction and through the things that come with the addiction. And of course they would probably rather just not have the bad thing happen to them in the first place because the addiction becomes an increasingly awful thing for their lives. And, um, I think ideally uh, Fyodor Pavlovich would rather have had his wife love him and be faithful to him and not leave him for a <laughs> destitute seminarian and I think that there's part of him that, that reacts badly to the church because she left him for someone who was a seminary student. So in this, what seems like he doesn't have this personal vendetta against God the way that Ivan does, I think Fyodor Pavlovich actually has a deep pain that he attributes to God's doing, which is really the responsibility of his wife and, and the destitute seminarian. Um, but that, that, that's completely gone by about 10 more pages into the novel. So we, we forget that he was, you know, make, made a cuckold of, he, he was, he was, um, you know, cheated on. And, and we think of him as this, like, you know, he's trying to basically score as many women as he can, but it is coming out of this brokenness in his marriage well, also, the first paragraph tells us that my translation said he was a toady in the house of others. Yours says a sponger. Mm-hmm. I've seen other times him being called a lackey, kind of like Smirnikov is called a lackey, and there's, it says he has a lackey soul. But it's just this type of person in Russia, and it was just a typical type of person. It was a, an approved, understood type of person, a person who lives off of other people in, in that era. Um, but it was a humiliating position to be in, right? Um, it's not something you would take pride in, even though it was something that everyone understood. They're just people like this who, um, in fact, the famous example of it, Adam, do you remember when we watched the Bleak House miniseries? 
Yes. And oh this guy, Uriah gosh. Heap, who lives with that family, and then he keeps saying, like, I'm an innocent as a child. I don't understand anything. But he's this toxic, horrible person at the same this time. This is the BBC uh, Bleak House. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's good, but that character... He's awful. And just, he was a part uh, inspiration for several Dostoevsky characters. Apparently, Dostoevsky read Dickens. And so, anyway, um, I think I might be getting my characters mixed up. Uriah Heat might be David Copperfield, and then the guy I'm thinking of in um, Bleak House is saying something different. Something, something Skimpole. Is Skimpole. Skimpole. That's his name. Okay. But anyway, all that to say that um, Fyodor Pavlovich was this toady sponge lackey type that's humiliating he had to go ask people to support him and sponge off them and either house and I think being born in that position where you don't really have anything but you're of such a social class where you feel like you're not meant to go just work right Jane Austen's full of characters like that too it's very humiliating to be in that position to feel that you have to just put up with any kind of treatment from your wealthier relatives and friends. And and you're basically relegated to being the court jester. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason you belong in the castle in the first place. Yeah, you got to entertain somebody or bring something to the table, be like the humble listener who never contradicts. It, you're just going to lose your dignity and self-respect yes. very easily. So if he grew up like that and was in that position as a young man, you can kind of see how you stop knowing how to be your real self you don't even know what your real self is you just play a part and try to make people laugh at you he still does that even though now he's an independently wealthy man so you mentioned that and this this actually follows that directly so this is in chapter two it says at the end of the chapter Fyodor Pavlovich was quite pleased with this as it suited his own designs he simply concluded that the young man meaning Dimitri was frivolous, wild, passionate, impatient, impatient, <laughs> a wastrel who, if he could snatch a little something for a time, would immediately calm down, though of course not for long. And this Fyodor Pavlovich began to exploit. That is, he fobbed him off with small sums, with short-term handouts, until after four years, Mitya, having run out of patience, came to our town a second time to finish his affairs with his parent, when it suddenly turned out, to his great amazement, that he already had precisely nothing, that it was impossible even to get an accounting, that he had already received the whole value of his property in cash from Fyodor Pavlovich and might even be in debt to him, that in terms of such and such deals that he himself had freely entered into on such and such dates, he had no right to demand anything more, and so on and so forth. And yet again, I take it to the Royal Tannenbaums, because there's there's a very similar relationship that's primarily financial between Royal, the father, and Chaz, the oldest son. And so, um, you know, what he's mentioning, like, the, the indignities that Fyodor Pavlovich has to, has to face, and then basically he, he makes his son go through all the same indignities. And then Smirnikov is his son, presumably, and he puts him through even worse indignities, puts him in the same position of being the laughed-at buffoon who lives in his house and works for him, but also is kind of like a pet, and but he calls him stupid. Anyway, the fact that he gets almost murdered 
by one son who he puts through those indignities and then actually murdered by the other son who he puts through even worse indignities is it, it feels like a kind of poetic justice, but it also seems to show the embitteredness toward God that can come into your soul when you feel like you're in the position of a lackey. Um, I mentioned the other day that Dostoevsky saw a lot of people in prison who he felt had reacted against being treated like they didn't have any dignity or, you know, weren't respected by anybody by acting out in crime because, like, I'll make you respect me or I'll make you notice me or something like that. That That's just something that can happen to a person very easily when they're treated as if they're almost subhuman. So I really see it as pain transfer, like, uh, Fyodor Pavlovich receives all this pain from his first wife and then he just transfers it to Dimitri and it makes sense in a way like I, I just think this is a very common thing it's not right but it's it's common that the person that reminds you of that person that hurts you is more likely to receive your pain than someone that's nothing like them and so, of course, who's going to remind Fyodor Pavlovich more of his wife than his child by that wife? And so when he comes of age, he, you know, Dmitri gets really abused by his father, like, like in a financial way. Like, I would mm-hmm. say his dad takes advantage of him again and again and again and again to the point yeah. where, um, like, Dmitri feels like if he kills his father and takes the money, like, that money is, is owed him and his father's never going to give it to him and he's going to waste it on Grushinka rather than have to give it to Dimitri, which is just, you know, for those people that have seen their family members blow e- either money or, or affection, it doesn't have to be, like, literal money, but their treasure, whatever that is, on someone who really is just milking them it, it's just such a bitter pill to have to see them do that because they they have the right to give their money who they want to but it's like who deserves it you know it's like well Demetrius the firstborn he should be by law the one who's getting it but Fyodor Pavlovich is like no I'm I'm gonna wait I'm gonna not only uh almost like in in incite you to waste your money but I'm going to hold it against you and send you to debtor's prison if you know if I can and he Mm -hmm. he even talks about crushing him like a cockroach so there's this like almost murderous bent in Fyodor Pavlovich toward toward, uh, Dimitri that's not just a a one way uh, parasite it's actually an infanticide and parasite it's almost like which one's going to happen which you know when you're reading it you don't think of it that way because it just seems like uh, Fyodor Pavlovich is like all talk but Dmitri kind of seems like he's all talk too but just in, in a louder voice like he seems crazed all the time whereas Fyodor Pavlovich is like drunk all the time and and so and you see Fyodor Pavlovich he gives Dmitri money in these smaller amounts for, for years just to keep him quiet and away I guess and then he's calling in IOUs as if those clearly either gifts of money or just like payments of money that 
came from his mom's dowry as if they were loans. Mm-hmm. Like I, that's how I'm understanding it at yeah, least. That's right. You're that right. the Fyodor Pavlovich is just giving him money, and Dmitri has no concept that that they're loans. He's like, this is money that you should. You know I mean, you've never done a thing to care for me your whole life, and you're my father. You have a lot of money. At least you might want to give me a little money. I mean, you know. And my mother brought a lot of money into the marriage. So anyway, that. I think just the darkness of doing that, like, he seems like he's genuinely considering sending his son to debtor's prison on the premise of loans that Dimitri did not even know were loans, thought were just legitimate amounts of money that he was supposed to be getting. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking about this idea of the money. Well, the money comes from Dimitri's mom. Like, her dowry is substantial, and, you know, currency rates aside, I get the impression that uh, Fyodor Pavlovich gets this kind of nouveau riche, like, going from, you know, the trailer park to the, the, the McMansion, you know, he gets this immediate wealth jump because of this money and this, this family that uh, Dimitri's mother is in, and... I was thinking about this. This is just really going someplace with it. Uh, when it talks about uh, Ivan and Alyosha's mom, it says, um, "It says yet this time he did not even count on getting anything, but was tempted only by the innocent girl's remarkable beauty and above all by her innocent look, which struck the sensualist who until then had been a depraved admirer only of the coarser kind of feminine beauty." Those innocent eyes cut my soul like a razor, he used to say afterwards with his disgusting little snigger. And then a little later it says, loose women would gather in the house right in front of his wife and orgies took place. I was thinking about this. What if, I mean, this is is just going into interpretive mode. What if Dimitri's mom is like the West and France and these like things that are going to enrich Russia with their culture and their philosophies and things like that and then uh, uh, Ivan and Alyosha's mom is like the Russian church and that um, that Fyodor Pavlovich is Russia and he, it's almost like he was attracted to uh, what would what would basically uh, change his status like change his place in the world but ultimately erase what was what was kind of uniquely him and on the other side, it's like, was uniquely him? <laughs> it is this like, like, oh, she cuts, you know, she, she cuts my eye it, when she looks at me. Those innocent eyes cut my cut my soul like a razor. He needs this like ability to be poetic and and uh, metaphorical and 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 have this kind of dramatic flair like what he's been talking about. And so, it's almost like he marries. The uh, Sophia um, Agranova, I think, um, Ivan and, and Alyosha's mom, but he doesn't really stay loyal to her. It says right after that, too, that he, like he's saying, um, her eyes cut my soul, but then it says something like knowing him, that might have just been, he might have meant that in like a low way. Yeah. Like yeah. it's not, because that you could take those words to mean yes. she. Her innocence touched my conscience or my soul or made me feel like a better man. Or a, a different person might have meant it that way, but then it, 
it seems ambiguous coming from him because you know he's such a ladies' man and a sensualist, and it might be more along the lines of, oh, a new flavor of woman. I'm never around women like this. I'd like to try this flavor of woman. Yeah. The ambig- ambiguity is left preserved. We just know what he yeah. said. Um, honestly, for him, it seems to me like he has like a tiny capacity to have his conscience pricked by the church, yes. but then he laughs it away because he is a scoffer. Right. He reminds right. me of Psalm 1 where it talks about not sitting in the seat of scoffers and, and mockers. He is a scoffer. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I look at, like, just that idea of, like, he's having orgies in the house when they're married. Like, she's just, you know, this little innocent whatever. But then it says a little while later, it says, Later this unhappy young woman who had been terrorized since childhood. By the way, she's an orphan. And so she, like, lived with this, like, really rich governor, or not governess, uh, benefactress. It says, uh, she came down with something like a kind of feminine nor- nervous disorder, most often found among simple village women who are known as shriekers because of it. Mm-hmm. From this disorder, accompanied by terrible hysterical fits, the sick woman would sometimes even lose her reason. I mean, it's enough to make you become hysterical and and lose exactly. your mind to live in a house, to to think someone's rescuing you from someone who was cruel to you. This woman, their mother tried to kill herself. She tried to hang herself right. because she was so miserable by the way she was being treated by her benefactress. Right. She was in the same position as a sponge or a toady where she's totally dependent on this person who was willing to take her in and the person was cruel to her. So all that to say, her life has been horrible. And then she gets into this situation where she's got a husband who is desecrating everything, her and everything that she holds dear. You know, there's that story that he tells to Alyosha and Ivan. It's it's a very powerful moment to me. Um, Theodore just starts reminiscing about their mother. Almost, he's kind of drunk, but almost absentmindedly reminiscing about their mother. And he says, you know what? I remember how she would be praying to this icon of the mother of God. And then I would come in and I would like say, none of this is true. This is nothing and stomp on it. Or I can't remember the details, but he would just do these very disrespectful things and threaten to like destroy the icon or deface it. And she would become hysterical and, and he would have to take her to the monastery to pray her saying again. He is tormenting her and everything that she holds sacred and driving her crazy. And as he's telling the story, Alyosha starts having the same reaction as his mother. He starts becoming, he starts rocking yes. and like yes. he, becoming kind of hysterical. And Ivan says, <laughs> Theodore's like, what's wrong with Alyosha? And Ivan says, well, you're talking about you know, our mother. Yeah. And yeah. at first, Theodore can't even remember. He's like, oh, that is both of your mother. Like, he d- hadn't been truly processing that. It, he's confused. But all that to say, that moment's so loaded, I think, because Alexei seems stronger than his mother, and he seems more capable of being magnanimous and handling it when his father is being disrespectful of his faith and being blatantly sinful in his presence but there's a still a limit yeah 
when he starts disrespecting his mother and his mother's faith, he's like, somebody you can feel the cognitive dissonance or something, emotional dissonance in Alexi as he's thinking, I want to be patient with my father and bear with him in love, but this is too far. There are some, there are some things that are going too far in the way he's talking about my mother and the things he put her through. I can't stand it. So, so this chapter about Alyosha, this is the third son, Alyosha, which is chapter four of part one. It says, um, so this is a description of, of Theodore. It says, besides his long, fleshy bags, besides the long, fleshy bags under his eternally insolent, suspicious, and leering little eyes, beside the multitude of deep wrinkles on his fat little face, a big Adam's apple, fleshy and oblong like a purse, hung below his sharp chin, giving him a sort of repulsively sensual appearance. Add to that a long, carnivorous mouth with plump lips, behind which could be seen the little stumps of black, almost decayed teeth. He sprayed saliva whenever he spoke. However, he himself liked to make jokes about his own face, although he was apparently pleased with it. <laughs> he pointed especially to his nose, which was not very big, but was very thin and noticeably hooked. A real Roman one, he used to say. Along with my Adam's apple, it gives me a, the real physiognomy of an ancient Roman patrician of the decadent period. He seemed to be proud of it. And just... it. it it's as if the ugliness of his soul has come out into the ugliness of his his appearance. And, you know, I, I do think there's something to that. I think that the more beautiful your spirit, not necessarily the more beautiful you'll be in worldly terms, but the more attractive you will seem to other people. And, like, I could go talk to that person. They won't tell me to, you know go you know go away or be you know f off or whatever like that that's something that i certainly <laughs> aspire to like i hope people see me as a beautiful soul i don't really care if they see me as a like beautiful handsome whatever like someone that's going to be thought of as as a good looking man that's not really what's important to me what's important is do people see jesus in me because really the beauty that you're seeing in Alyosha is Christ. The beauty that you're seeing in Zosima is Christ. And and so that I think is true of all people whose faith is pure. Um, but but even even with an ounce of pure faith, you can have a cloudy, like a muddle headedness, like it talks about with Theodore Dust uh, Theodore, Theodore Pavlovich. Um, and it it can just complicate that. And I think that there's just something about a purity of, of heart that comes through in someone's face in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, like an undivided heart, too. Yes. Where they don't have yes. mixed motives. And yeah, uh, the father and Dimitri and Ivan are quite torn between. Mm-hmm. It looks different in each one of them, but I would say they're, they're muddled and torn and yes. divided. Um, it feels as if they're not integrated personalities as a, you know, kind of a modern psychologist might put it, but, um, Alexi's an an integrated personality. He has one desire and goal that overrides and directs his life, whereas the others don't, they're confused. Right. Right. A divided people. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of divided, you know, the thing that I think divides Fyodor 
in terms of like how he interacts with Alyosha in particular is he doesn't 100% believe there is no God. But he certainly is not 100% there is. And so he, he goes into these long, like, almost like he's, he's pretending, we talk about like he's, a, he's an actor, Mm-hmm. He's acting as if he's considering it like really deeply. Yep, but it's stupid. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like the hooks. The ho- that's what I yeah. was going to talk about. <laughs> the hooks. He's talking about this idea of the hooks. He says, um, "Surely it's impossible." I think that the devils will forget to drag me down to their place with their hooks when I die. And then I think, hooks? Where do they get them? What are they made of? Iron? Where do they forge them? How did? have they got some kind of factory down there? You know, in the monastery, the monks probably believe there's a ceiling in hell, for instance. Now me, I'm ready to believe in hell, only there shouldn't be any ceiling. That would be, as it were, more refined, more elegant, more Lutheran, in other words. Does it really make any difference with a ceiling or without a ceiling? But that's what the diamond, (laughs) that's what the damn question is about, (laughs) is all about. Because if there's no ceiling, then there are no hooks. If there are no hooks, the whole thing falls apart, which, again, is unlikely because then who will drag me down with the hooks? Because if they don't drag me down, what then? And where is there any justice in the world? And then he says some French that I don't know how to pronounce. Those hooks, just for me, for me alone, because you have no idea, Alyosha, what a stinker I am. And, and the thing is, is he's drunk almost all the time. And so there's that, like, in vino veritas, like, is he, is he letting out some deep-seated, um, like, like, apprehension about his soul when he's talking about this? I or, think so. Yeah. Um, in, in this sense, he later, also drunk, later asks Ivan, no, really, tell me, is there a God? Yes. For real. Yes. Is there a God? And Ivan says, no. Yeah. And then he says, okay, Alyosha, you tell me, is there a God? Yes. Yes. So still he's di- divided. I think in, to some extent, he and Ivan seem similar. I think there's maybe some overlap between... Ivan and Fyodor Pavlovich, that's a little bit harder to see. It's easier to see how he and Dmitri are similar. They're fighting over the same woman. You know, they're both men of impulses. Um, I think that he and Ivan also are somewhat similar in that they're like, is there a God? And for Fyodor Pavlovich, it may be more like, is there a God? Because there, I will definitely get dragged down to hell by the yeah. demons if there's a yeah. God. I'm not going to repent. Yeah. And so therefore... I hope there's not a God, but I'm still yeah. still nagging at me yeah. a bit. And I want to make a game of it because it's more comforting to me to think there's not a God than that there is a God because I don't want to repent. Like that French that he says, which I won't say well either, but um, il faudrait les inventer. Um, they would have to be invented, those hooks. Um, that is... Is that coming from Voltaire? Coming from Voltaire, this idea that you would have to invent God. You, you know, if he doesn't if, exist, if he doesn't you, exist have you have to invent him. him. Yeah. That idea comes up later, too, with Ivan, where he's talking about basically someone invented God. He tells his father, like, someone invented God because it's some, you couldn't have had civilization if you didn't have God. He says, well, if no one had invented God, you wouldn't be drinking that brandy. None mm-hmm. of the stuff that you enjoy would have even yes. been developed. 
um, God is a necessary precondition for civilization. So Ivan does not fear that there's a God because he's so sinful. It's, he does, I don't think he even thinks of himself as particularly sinful. He's proud. Um, I think Ivan wants all of the order and civilization and morality that he knows actually comes with a belief in God, but he is, in, I would say, enslaved to his own reason. He thinks his reason is so powerful that it actually has enslaved him, and he's like, I could never take a leap of faith that there's something bigger than me that's beyond my understanding. I can understand everything. His his uh, intellectual pride is kind of crippling him to do what he would like to do, which is to believe in God. That's why he's wrestling with it so much. Um, for all of his buffoonery, Fyodor Pavlovich is quoting Enlightenment thinkers and things like that. You can tell he's relatively well-read. He sprinkles his conversation with French. It says... <laughs> The, so, so this is in the Smerdyakov uh, chapter, if I can find it. It says, there were a fair number of books in the house. This is on page 125 in my, in, in Smerdyakov, the chapter 6 in book, uh, where, where am I? Um, book 2. It says, there were a fair number of books in the house, more than 100 volumes, but no one had ever seen Fyodor Pavlovich with a book in his hands. He immediately gave Smerdyakov the key to the bookcase. Well, read then. You can be my librarian. Sit and read. It's better off, better than loafing around the yard. Here, try this one. And Fyodor Pavlovich handed him evenings on a farm near Dikanyka. And so it's hilarious to think, like, how does he know all this stuff? And I think it's because he's a sponger. I don't think he actually reads it. He, you know, he somehow BSs his way into, yeah. you know. Or he... I had this funny thought. You know how he sends all the servants out every night and he yes. likes to sleep in the house completely yes. alone? Maybe he's cultivated this this image of himself as a buffoon that he oh. wants to have cultivated, but he reads at night when he's alone and he makes all the servants leave the house so they won't catch him reading because that's not in his image that he would be a reader. That's funny to think about. That part, I'm so glad you brought that part up because it's such a small moment, but it's had a little thought about it that is in giving me some insight into the situation. So he gives Smerdikov a book to read. It's a fictional book. Smerdikov says, that's not real. I, I don't want to read that. Like, what's the point of reading fiction? That's a connection back to the Just author's the note. It, but with displeasure, he never once smiled. Yeah. On the contrary, finished it with a frown. It's like, that wasn't real. Was the, why should I reason that it wasn't real? The author's note touches on the same idea, that they're just people who are so kind of literal-minded or something that they think, what's the point of reading a story that's not real? And that how, the limitation of your mind, and if you think that way. I think that's kind of like Fyodor Pavlovich's hooks. He's being so literal-minded, he's actually being kind of, a simpleton, even though he sounds on the surface like he's being rational. It's like, where would they get the hooks in hell? Do they have a forge in hell? Where would they? Like, as if he can't think about things on anything beyond just like a very material level. And I do admit to sometimes I have a snobbish, dismissive reaction to people who say they don't read fiction. They don't understand the point of reading fiction. They only want to read something that really happened. Um, 
I'd like to get past having a judgmental response and be more like Eliosha and not judge about it. But I do think it's meant to show something about Smirnikov that's limited in him, that he doesn't know how to engage with something that's not, not real. This isn't rational. This isn't real. His intellect is limited, but he worships his intellect almost in the same way that Ivan worships his own intellect. And then he gets handed... Um, Fyodor Pavlovich hands him a book of history next and says, okay, fine, all this really happened. Read this book. And he gets 10 pages in and says, this is boring and puts it down. So I think the difference is Smerdikov is puffed up and proud about being smart, but he is not willing to put in the work, whereas Ivan's willing to put in the work, actually read the books, actually go to university. Uh, So he's even more puffed up. And that's why you see Smirnikov deferring to Ivan intellectually because he's like, okay, I do understand that you put in more work than me yeah. to your intellect. Yeah, I think that there's there's something about, like, if you have an incredible intellect, there's some people, and, and we've known these students, who will not do the work. It's almost like Jerry's race where he will not race Duncan, whatever his name is. Um, on Seinfeld. On Seinfeld. <laughs> um, I was still trying to think of Duncan's last night. I think it's not it's not Kane because that's Veronica Mars. But, um, but that concept of, like, I proved it once that I have this incredible ability, and it's actually to my, to my you know... Uh, uh-huh. to, you know, to to my ill or to my uh, I'm lost my lost for words here. Um, it's not to my benefit. Yeah, it's not to, to my, my disadvantage. disadvantage. <laughs> now we have it to to uh, demonstrate again and again because eventually I might not have it. And I think that someone that's intellectual like that has this. It's a possibility they have this like black and white sense of like if I ever don't show it. I've been a fraud all along. Or if I try my hardest, this is that student type that you're talking about. If I try my hardest and then I don't do amazingly well and get praised for it, I'll feel like my identity as smarter than everyone else is shaky, so I'm not going to try my hardest, and then we'll never know. Exactly. Um, In fact, interestingly, Fyodor Pavlovich says that about Ivan. So Alyosha goes to visit his father after the beating and his father had told him explicitly come tomorrow don't come when Ivan's here don't tell Ivan you're coming and it's not clear why but when he gets there Fyodor says to Alyosha something like Ivan is silent and he's not as smart as you think that he is he just is silent and that serves to make everyone feel intimidated by him and think that he's smart. It's, that's kind of the gist of it. Um, there may be some truth to that. Ivan obviously is very intelligent and has this powerful reason, but he's a very young man. He does not have everything figured out. He intimidates other people by smiling ironically and being noncommittal, and you can't tell if he's being ironic or real. He writes that article that everyone's talking about, where it's too ambiguous to tell where his stance is. And so people who support the separation of church and state think he's on their side. And then also people who think that the church should take over everything think that he's on their side. 
And it sounds to me like, as in many things, Ivan can't make his mind up, and he just he can logically follow it an argument to its end and say, you know what, this is what it would look like if this were true. That that can be a very stultifying way to be. I've had moments in my life where I was more like this myself, where I was like, well, I can understand their point of view and I could argue their argument and in a way that sounds pretty convincing, but I could understand the opposite point of view too. And I could argue their argument in a way that sounds convincing and it can make everything start to feel like a game and you don't know where you stand and you have no convictions and taking the plunge into having a conviction and believing in an absolute truth is scary for a person who feels like they can see things from every angle and see things from every direction and see the flaws and see the, you know, Ivan's not, I would say he's not brave enough to make that leap, that plunge into having faith in anything. He just sees everything in terms of gray. Right. And it's interesting that you say that because, you know, Dmitri, uh, not Dmitri, Fyodor Pavlovich, the father, it, it, that's where we're seeing that intersection between the father and the son, meaning Fyodor and Ivan. And so this is in the over the cognac, which, by the way, he, so, so Fyodor Pavlovich is drunk in this point, and he says, um, he says, as to what he's got going to think up for himself, he's talking about, um, he, he's like been talking about uh, Smerdyakov, but then he says, as to what he's going to think up for himself, generally speaking, the Russian peasant should be whipped. I've always maintained that our peasants are cheats. They're not worth our pity, and it's good that they're still sometimes given a birching. The strength of the Russian land is in its birches. It's the far, if the forest were destroyed, it would be the end of the Russian land. And so there's this idea of, like, the thing that keeps Russia strong it is, like, the class system and, like, keeping the peasants in their place. And it's interesting that he says that about the, the strength of the Russian land is in its birches, and Musoff is in this, like, this disagreement with the the monastery about this forest and who owns it. And I was thinking about that, like, I think that there's something really powerful in that metaphor that that, uh, Dostoevsky is bringing up in in the mouth of Fyodor Pavlovich, which is to say, like, should the church be responsible for the justice within Russia, which is exactly what Ivan's article is about. And obviously, Fyodor Pavlovich is trying to say there should be justice, there should be like punishment for for um, thievery or for... Um, yeah, all of a sudden he's on a moral high horse yeah. there. These, these uh, peasants are just the worst. Like, their morals are terrible. They definitely need to get flogged. And who's going to flog you? I think... Right. Everyone around him, Musov, Dmitri, Ivan, they're all like, you need to be flogged, clearly. They also say the same thing about Grishenka. She should have been publicly flogged a long time ago. Yes. (laughs) And and then, then he continues out of that, and he says, and Russia is all swinishness. My friend, if you only knew how I hate Russia, that is not Russia, but all this vice, and maybe Russia too. And then he says something in French that I don't know. Do you know what I love? I love wit. (laughs) And I think that that's, you know, that's what an atheism uh, worldview will will ultimately drive you toward is like the sense of like, 
being funny and being witty and like not everyone getting the joke, somehow you're better than someone because you get a joke. And France was really associated with wit at that time and the Russian mind, which makes sense that he just says something in French. Um, I have to look at it and see what it says, but that you made me think of something I just read in um, the Joseph Frank biography, which is wonderful. I would totally recommend at least go out and read the last few chapters of the Joseph Frank biography, which are about the brothers Karamazov because they're very illuminating. But um, I'll just read a sentence that connects directly to what you're saying. You know, how um, Fyodor Pavlovich said, I hate Russia. And he seems to ally himself with the Western society in France there. This says, Alyosha and his teacher Zosima were certainly the heart of the Russian whole, which is um, a reference back to how, in the author's note, Alyosha is called the heart of Russia, that Russia has been blown away from it, but it will come back. So Alyosha and his teacher Zosima were certainly the heart of the Russian whole for Dostoevsky. And one aim of the book was to drive this point home to those who rejected the divinity of Christ while revering the values of the Russian people who came to adore him through the person of Zosima. So all this to say, the kind of older generation that um, FP (laughs) was a part of um, tended to just be like skeptical atheists, following the trends of the Enlightenment and and Western society. But the younger generation, Alyosha's age, tended to admire Christian moral values and admire the Russian people. Populism was in in vogue when this book was being written. So people were looking at Russia and saying, the Russian people are beautiful. The Russian people have great moral values compared to Europeans. I think it's supposed to vilify Fyodor Pavlovich that he says, I hate Russia. Like That's not a good yeah. sign in this yeah. book. And that he's allying himself with Western Europe. Um, father Zosima who's our other father, is supposed to represent the true heart and soul of Russia and the Russian people. And Elish has allied himself with Father Zosima instead of his own father. So that, of course, segues us perfectly to Father Zosima. Um, So there's a lot to talk about about Father Zosima. We're an hour and 20 minutes into this. But um, there's several points I wanted to talk about, one of which is really early on. So this is in Chapter 1. Uh, sorry, not chapter one. This is in book one, um, where it says, The Elder Zosima, this is in Elders, so it's chapter five. The Elder Zosima was about 65 years old, came from a landowning family, had been in the army back in his very early youth, and served in the Caucasus as a commissioned officer. Which, of course, is interesting. That That's what Dimitri does, right? And so, he, you know, he, he's military just like Dimitri was. No doubt he struck Alyosha by some special quality of his soul. Alyosha lived in the cell of the elder who loved him very much and allowed him to stay by him. It should be noted that Alyosha, while living in the monastery at the time, was not yet bound by anything, could go wherever he pleased, even for whole days, and if he wore a cassock, it was voluntary, so as not to be different from anyone else in the monastery. And then it goes on to say, Many said of the elder Zosima that having for so many years received all those who came to him to open their hearts, thirsting for advice and for a healing word, having taken into his soul so many confessions, sorrows, confidences, 
He acquired, in the end, such fine discernment that he could tell from the first glance at a visiting stranger's face what was in his mind, what he needed, and even what kind of suffering tormented his conscience. And he sometimes astonished, perplexed, and almost frightened the visitor by his knowledge of this secret even before he had spoken a word, which, of course, is, is exactly how Christ is. And so... Um, I guess the implication is Zosima has become so Christ-like that he has this, what I would call um, pre-fall intelligence. Like Adam and Eve before the fall, they're perfect. So it's possible that 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 same intuition, if you want to call it that, is is possible in human beings, and it's not it's not like. it's it's uh, solitary to Christ. I think that that it can be channeled to people whose faith is so pure and deep and and reliant on Christ that really you're really not seeing the person anymore. You're just seeing Christ like almost wholeheartedly. It also might be the case that he's paying a kind of egoless attention to other people or or a low ego <laughs> attention to other people. That allows him to just see more than a person who, I mean, usually when I'm paying attention to someone, I'm also kind of paying attention to myself. And it might even be just as small a thing as I'm kind of thirsty. I just got something about myself in the back of my mind. Um, or I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. Or I'm thinking a thought that I wouldn't want to say out loud to them, maybe. Whatever it is. I'm thinking about what I have to do later. Zosma might just be giving them such devoted attention that he can intuit things in a non-supernatural way. It's funny, though, later it says that everybody in the monastery comes to him for confession every single day and confesses their sins of the day, and it's just this tradition that's developed at the monastery, but some of the people at the monastery resent having to do that, and so they just make stuff up occasionally to tell him that they did as sins, just to have something to say, and he doesn't seem to call them on it. So whether he can't tell that they're making it up or he just is kind enough to not call them on it and just let it be is hard to say. But I do appreciate that Father Zosima himself is portrayed as being a wonderful ideal, but the whole monastery isn't by any stretch. The whole monastery is just... In fact, Zosima says people come to a monastery because they're weaker than other people, not stronger. They, They have to... You kind of have to hide from the world, whereas someone like Alyosha, he feels he can send into the world and say, hey, get married, engage with your family, live out in the world. You're going to be an ambassador to the world yes. of God's love. You're not going to hide away here. So Whitney's bringing up the point in the beginning of book four, Strains, which is in the chapter one, Father Farapont. It says, love one another's fathers, the elder taught, meaning Zosima, um, love God's people. For we are not holier than those in the world because we've come here and shut ourselves within these walls. But on the contrary, anyone who comes here by the very fact that he has come already knows himself to be worse than all of those who are in the world, worse than all on earth. And the longer a monk lives within his walls, the more keenly he must become aware of it. And so, you know, Whitney's bringing up a great point, which is the depth, like, like, like the intensity of faith comes with the knowledge of your absolute worthlessness apart from Christ 
in the eyes of God that no amount of good deeds, virtues, uh, morals, you know, um, purities that you bring to God and say, is this enough, will we'll get even uh, the, the cash register to go above zero. And so um, the only way to have value in God's eyes in terms of meriting salvation is to have the merit of Christ. And of course, that's Christianity in a sentence right there. And, and, and of course, Zosima is articulating that, but it's interesting how he articulates it. He says, For you must know, my dear ones, that each of us is undoubtedly guilty on behalf of all and for all on earth, not only because of the common guilt of the world, but personally, each one of us for all people and for each person on this earth. This knowledge is the crown of the monk's path and on every man's path on earth. For monks are not different, a different sort of men, but only such as all men in earth ought also to be. Only then will our hearts be moved to a love that is infinite, universal, and that knows no satiety. Then each of us will be able to gain the whole world by love and wash away the world's sins with his tears. And, you know, Dimitri actually comes to that exact conclusion, like, I'm responsible for everyone else's suffering. And in a way, that seems egotistical. But in a way, it's, it's what Father Zosima is teaching, which is, if you understand God's goodness, Christ's uh, sacrifice for us, Christ's suffering for us, you will recognize your, um, your responsibility, your role, your, your, your culpability. And as such, you won't assign anyone else the culpability for Christ's death. You'll just say, Christ had to die because I brought that sin to the world. And I found it a little overwhelming the first time I read this book, this this concept that everyone's responsible for everyone else, because I thought I already have a certain tendency to get overwhelmed by the sense of responsibility for all my students and my coworkers and people I know at church and to think I should do something. And then I can sometimes get crippled and not do much of anything because I get overwhelmed. And then I neglect my immediate family like Adam and Josephine because I'm trying to look out for everyone else's kids. I mean, there's just a lot that can go with that. And you do see Alyosha getting very overwhelmed several different times in the book because he's running around town trying to help everybody and take responsibility for everybody. He's going to Katerina's house. He's going to Grushinka's house. He's going to his father's house. He's going to meet his brothers. He's just, his elder's dying, and that's where his heart is and where he'd like to be, but he has to go everywhere else because he's respon- he feels responsible. Right. And it is overwhelming, but he is doing the right thing by feeling responsible rather than feeling callous and like he doesn't care about anybody else. But it is yes. overwhelming. But I love what you were just saying about, I, I'm so glad you brought up that quotation about everyone is guilty before all and for everything. Um, it says, and therefore everyone is strong enough also to forgive everything for others. I was thinking about if I committed every sin, like if I knew it for a fact that I committed every sin in the world, like, I mean, and I'm talking about whatever the worst sin I can think of is in my own mind, like pedophilia or sexual assault or murder. Infanticide. Yeah. Being a traitor to your country, like whatever just springs to your mind first and you're like, that's evil. 
if I had committed every single sin, then what moral high ground would I have for judging other people about anything ever, right? Um, if I felt I'd been forgiven and I committed every sin in the world, it's hard to imagine ever getting to a point of being judgmental of another person. You'd want to just help them find forgiveness too and help them rehabilitate. But we learn from Scripture that between original sin and the fact that if I've broken the law in one point, I'm a lawbreaker in every point, that is the spiritual reality that we've committed every sin. Like, everyone's guilty of every sin. We're all just lawbreakers. And so what will happen the more we're regenerated by Christ and what will ultimately happen in eternity when we have all the time in the world and there's no reason to run around like a chicken with your head cut off is that everyone's responsible for everyone else. Everyone's equally guilty and therefore everyone is strong enough also to forgive everything in others. Yeah. You know, I think about the rich young ruler uh, coming to Christ and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's like, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? And he says, well, love God, and, and he basically says, like, like follow the Ten Commandments. But he mentions nine of them. <laughs> and he doesn't say, thou shalt not covet. And I think that when Jesus says, you're right, now go and sell everything you have and come and follow me, and then the young ruler, young, rich young ruler walks away dejected, I think that Jesus is pointing out you haven't followed all the commandments and the one that was hardest for you to follow is the one that you've broken the most times. And and so I think that, you know, Whitney's making a good point. Like if if you just committed every single sin that you possibly could, then maybe you would be poor, uh, poor in spirit enough to be able to say, I can't judge anyone else. Mm. But really... The rich young ruler walks away from the possibility of, of being a disciple of Christ, being someone who is, you know, responsible for, for um, sharing the riches of the kingdom of heaven with the first century church, because he doesn't want to give away his his stuff, and and it's like that. Jesus is pointing to many things in that, but one of the things he's pointing to is who are you, and he's rich and he's young, and he's a ruler. And what Jesus is saying is, give up being the ruler of whatever you get to, whatever your your um, domain is. Give up your youth, and just like, like, stop having your youth as, as like a, um, you know, a, a trump card, like, like something that's like, I'm young, so people find me desirous, like, no, nope, that doesn't matter when you're following mm-hmm. me. And give up being rich. So give up your status in other people's eyes mm-hmm. and, and, and everything that you get to enjoy because you're rich. And being young makes it harder to give up your yes. wealth and status, I think. If you were really old, you might be like, well, I've, I've enjoyed my good things in life. Now I can give all my money away. But if you're right. 20, giving all your money away, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Yeah. It's just an even bigger commitment that Jesus is asking for from him. Yeah. And, and you know, I think about Zosima, because it, it, as we're going to talk about, Zosima um, has this long biography uh, that's that's almost like a little novella within the novel. It's, it, it's about 40 pages, but it's like, it's pretty significant to see who was this man that became this, 
you know, this this saint, this this person that we think is like, oh, he's he's definitely going to heaven, you know. And of course, when he dies, his body has this awful smell, <laughs> but uh, which we'll talk about more with the Alyosha chapter. But um, I wanted to talk about Zosima's duel. So he falls in love with this woman, and Whitney, I'm I'm really not like super sharp on this because I was like cramming this right before we started <laughs> he he falls in love with this woman and she's already engaged and somehow he does he just misses that fact yeah it seems like he's a little self-absorbed yes um yes. he's like i just didn't notice that somehow <laughs> but. and so so he challenges this man who is the fiance to a duel and the man's like okay and and then he gets shot in the shoulder by the man, and he shoots his gun into the trees because he realizes, I just missed this. Like, I, it, it's my fault that I missed this. Like, he, he, he realizes his sin against the man, which is like, I was pursuing your woman and just didn't even acknowledge that you had already made a commitment to her and she had, she had accepted it. And now, granted... Is she going to be that great of a wife? I don't know. But but that, like, that he recognizes, very similar to Dimitri with Grushinka's first suitor that, that, like, spurns her, he immediately has this, like, yeah, I was wrong to be doing that. Another very important aspect of this dual situation is, I will say, I'll say two, we know how important genuineness is to Father Zosima, it says, this is in the section um, that you're talking about, the, the dual section in the Father Zosima recollection. It says, um, I am surprised to remember that my wrath and revengeful feelings were extremely oppressive and repugnant to my own nature. For being of an easy temper, I found it difficult to be angry with anyone for long, and so I had to work myself up artificially and became at last revolting and absurd. So in order to even get angry and initiate the duel, he had to be fake. He had to be like, I'm going to pretend to be really angry right now. Um, For some reason, he wanted to do that, but then at the same time, it didn't feel genuine to him. And we see later, he's a very happy-tempered man. He hears of people's sufferings all day long, and he always still has a happy temperament, you know? Um, So he starts off being fake. That's part of the problem with this duel is he's being artificial and dramatic and making a big grand gesture by even fighting a duel. And he does realize at some point, I say, I love this woman and she wants to marry this other man and not me. And I'm going to maybe kill this man. What am I doing? That's not love. Like that, that occurs to him. But the biggest thing that occurs to him, I think is that it says that he's about to go to the duel and he feels shame and pain. Um, And it says, what's the meaning of it? I feel in my heart as if something vile and shameful were there. Is it because I'm going to shed blood? No. (laughs) Can it be that I'm afraid of death, afraid of being killed? No. So he's doing what I have to do often, which is to say, I feel a bad feeling. Why? I don't know what happened, what's in there. I have to just dig around and figure it out. So he's doing that. And then he says, it's because I beat my servant. Yes. He's yes. he's like, I don't it's not even about the duel. 
I beat my servant. And it says, um, what, this is what a man has been brought to, and that was a man beating a fellow creature. What a crime. It was as though a sharp dagger had pierced me right through. And then he says, and then I remembered my brother Markle. Markle, his brother who died young, um, he feels like Alexi is almost a reincarnation of Markle. Not literally, but that he's so similar to Markle that that's why he loves um, Alexi so much. But it says, I remember my brother Markle and what he said on his deathbed to his servants. My dear ones, why do you wait on me? And why do you love me? Am I worth your waiting on me? And then he says, yes, am I worth it? Flashed through my mind. After all, what am I worth that another man, a fellow creature made in the likeness and image of God should serve me for the first time in my life? This question forces itself upon me. Um, that I love that that is the moment that, that converts him and changes him forever. It's not about the big dramatic duel. It's right. about he beat his servant. Thought nothing of it at the time, but deep in his heart, he caused him great shame. And then he finally remembered what his brother, who he admired so much, said, which is, am I worth it? And that question resonates in his soul for the rest of his life in a way that changes him forever. Am I worth it? Am I worth anyone serving me? Like, I was thinking about that just a few minutes ago because, like, Adam um, this morning took Josephine to the babysitter so that I could get up and, you know, go to the gym and just kind of get mentally refreshed and come home and shower and get some coffee and get ready to do this podcast. So he took care of Josephine, got her breakfast, took her to the babysitter. And if I take that with an attitude like, yeah, well, I've done that plenty of times. I deserve it. That is not an attitude that is poor in spirit. But if I take that with an attitude of like, what am I worth it? What have I done to deserve to be served? That attitude creates harmony in our family. That attitude creates harmony between me and God because it reminds me that even more so, I don't deserve the health and, you know, provision and love that God lavishes on me every single yeah. day. And I think that that's always a temptation is receiving love with expectation with like of course you love me i'm me versus receiving love with humility and and just the sense of like gosh this person loves me and i haven't i haven't killed her son (laughs) you know whereas god loves me infinitely more than that and it's my son my Mm -hmm. sins that required jesus to to leave heaven come to earth as a you know within the body of a man and 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 you know he's fully man so he his death is a human death but it's like god is willing to sacrifice his eternal connection with his son to gain an eternal connection with me that would end you know it would be a temporal connection with me if i died without faith in christ and so you know zosima is a great example of if you read this whole novel, you realize Zosima has grown into this level of faith. And, and, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you, like, I did not have this level of belief when I was 10 and got baptized, but I had genuine faith. And I think that God has just redeemed that faith ever since, even in all of my sins, all of my, um, you know, I, I always talk about the running the race of faith that you can run off course and that you can stop 
and, and just, you know, refuse to run anymore. And that you're not running the race if you're running the wrong course, you know, or if you're in the wrong direction. And you're not running the race if you're um, stopped, but you're still on the race. And, and that's the thing about faith is that if your faith is genuine, you're never going to stop being on the race until the end, you know, until you finish your race, so to speak. And, and you die. And so that concept of Zosimo, like, what is he doing when he's dying? Well, he, he's, like, dying the whole novel. Like, <laughs> when they get there, he's, like, going to die any day. It's only, like, two days later yeah. that he dies, I think. And, and, and it's, like, two days later that, that Fyodor Pavlovich dies. Yeah, it's all very compressed, which the, the book I'm reading makes that point that because the time is so compressed and, and almost all of Dostoevsky's books, he likes to work with a short timeline, it said. It means that the characters don't have time to grow and develop the way they would if you showed them over the course of years. But what tends to happen is that you just find out more and more of their complexity as you read because yeah. the characters are very complex. But I, Oh, sorry, yeah, go, ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I love what you were saying about well, really just kind of in general about like love and humility because I just feel that those are very key ideas for Zosima. Um, he says, always decide to use humble love. Loving humility is marvelously strong. Um, that is very paradoxical. It's something that isn't understood by your reason, but this novel is all about how your reason can't comprehend everything. Um, because it's very easy, I feel like in, in the culture at large in our day and maybe in every era, maybe it's just human nature, the culture at large, people tend to veer between, am I worth it? I'm worthless. I hate myself. Everybody hates me. Well, I hate everybody too. Or the other extreme is, I'm worth it. I deserve it. I deserve love. Treat yourself. It's like swinging wildly between these two unhealthy extremes. Zosima is giving the other path, which is to say, you know what? Humility, looking at others instead of myself, taking responsibility from others, letting my ego just be quelled and tamed and quieted and thinking, hey, am I worth anything that people are doing for me or anything that I'm receiving from God? No, but hey, hallelujah, I'm getting it anyway. Instead of feeling like you're worthless and getting stuck there. Like, it's just a, it's a third way. It's exactly. a different path. And, you know, this idea of, of, like, what is a person's worth, it's interesting that Zosima has this man that comes to him that basically, like, eventually confesses he's murdered this woman. And I yet again, I'm a little fuzzy on this. So Whitney, can you speak on that? This is in the like the, Yeah. The the biography of of um of Zosima. What's that situation? I, I mean I know that like he basically gets to the point where he's like confessing to Zosima that it happened and that he had been suicidal about it because he he's just like I basically, like it said that he would have a party every day, every year on the anniversary of this person dying and like feed all the town and was just like really um, like generous and open hearted 
but it was all coming from this sense of like I got away with something and it's tormenting me and and actually I think that that sets up this idea of what happens when you get away with it right well okay so this man killed a woman and then he thought well if I just live a good life for the rest of my life what good is it going to do in, in this utilitarian way that he's thinking? What good is it going to do for me to go to prison? I'll just live a good life. Um, I'll be generous. I will have a wife and kids and take care of them well. It's not going to serve anyone. I'm not going to murder anyone else. And it's not going to serve anyone for me, especially now that he does all those things, right? He's established. He has a wife and children. He's making a very practical argument, which is to say... A ra- even a rational argument if there's no God, which is to say, you know, I'm not going to hurt anybody else. What good's it going to do society? I'm doing good for society by being out of prison. Yet his conscience is tormenting him. Yes. That's why he goes to see Zosimus. He says, you seem different. I need counsel. My conscience is tormenting me. Rationally speaking, I don't think my conscience should be tormenting me. I think yes. it's, it's over. It's done with. No one got, no one's languishing in prison, suffering for my crime. Like, n- no one's being hurt anymore by this. And people would be hurt if I, if I confessed. Um, Zosima tells him, you need to confess. Yes. You need to be honest, mm-hmm. tell the truth, trust God. Yes. And the man waffles and waffles and waffles about doing it, but understandably, right? I mean, it's, it's a huge leap to take. And he finally does it. He tells the truth, and no one believes, and they think he's just gone crazy. Yes. Um, it doesn't turn out to be heroic at all. The, the 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 consolation you might be able to get from it if you confess to a crime like that when there's no reason to confess is that people would admire you. And the man even brings that up. That it, At the very least, the consolation might be, well, everyone will be amazed at the nobility of my gesture, that I, I confessed to something I had no reason to confess to just for the sake of honesty. And yet that doesn't even happen. People just feel sorry for him yeah. and think he's crazy. And so I really think that that goes to show there isn't a rationality to taking a leap of faith and trusting God. That's just a, a beautiful kind of boots on the ground example of what it might look like to take a leap of faith and trust in God and be honest and authentic and trust the results, even if the results involve suffering to God, um, rather than trusting your own reason. And Ivan, it parallels Ivan's situation, I believe, because Ivan also feels guilty of a crime. Mm -hmm. And if he were to stand up, he, he wants to confess in the courtroom no, I'm the one who's responsible yes. for my father's death. I basically told Smirnikov subtly that he should go kill my father, and I knew I was doing it. And the devil on his shoulder is telling him, no, 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 no one will believe you anyway. They'll think you're crazy. That sounds crazy. There's no point in doing that. What good is it going to do? It's just going to make you look silly in front of everyone. Why do it? And rationally speaking, Ivan knows that's the case. What's the point? It's not going to accomplish anything. But something in him, his conscience, wants him to do it anyway, to be authentic and to confess and to tell the truth and to behave as if there's a God. Yeah. And it's interesting that the way this story you know, comes full circle for, for Zosima is 
the man comes and he's like, I was ready to kill you. And he, you know, he, he basically just like humbly tells him, you need to confess to what you did. And it says, within five days, everyone knew that the sufferer had become ill and that they even feared for his life. What the nature of his illness was, I cannot explain. I said, it was said that he had a heart ailment, but it became known that the attending physicians at his wife's insistence also exclaimed his, physio- his psychological condition and reached the verdict that madness was indeed present. And it says, I betrayed nothing, though they came running to question me, but when I wished to visit him, I was prohibited for a time, for a long time, mainly by his wife. It was you who upset him, she said to me. He was gloomy anyway, and over the past year, everyone noticed his unusual anxiety and strange actions. Then you came along and ruined him. You and your endless reading at him did, did it. He never left you for a whole month. And then not only his wife, but everyone in town fell upon me and accused me. It is all your fault, they said. I kept silent and was glad in my soul, for I saw the undoubted mercy of God towards him who had risen against himself and punished himself. And I think that that's... I think that's the the paradox of Christianity, is that if you allow yourself to... um, abandon being rich, being young, being a ruler, if you, ab- if you abandon whatever it is that you hold as your idol, as your, your God, even if it's yourself, that the punishment you heap on yourself, which is to say um, any level of humiliation or disrespect or whatever it is that, that you receive as, as such, ultimately is... is God showing mercy to you because you're not getting what you should be getting, you know, which is eternity without him and, and, and in hell with, with just basically everything that is not God, like, like evil, uh, injustice. I mean, for people that are so hate, you know, that, that hate injustice so much, if you don't love God because of Christ, hell is going to be a, an unending just string of injustices just where it's almost like it it would uh, raise you to rage instantly all the time Mm -hmm. and of course we already know people that are like that now every good thing you love about this earth that's beautiful and actually good whether you know it or not that is God's reign on the earth that is God's image shining through the earth and I think that you know to, to kind of cap this off about Zosima and Fyodor Pavlovich, that that statement that I've heard many times, um, if if you if you believe in Christ, if you've put your faith in Him and confessed Him with your mouth and believe it in your heart and repented in your heart, that the earth is the closest you'll ever come to hell. And certainly, there are some times on earth that feel very hellish. But if you do not have faith in Christ, earth is the closest you'll ever come to heaven. And certainly there are some heavenly moments where it's just like, this is just blissful. This is what, I mean, just finishing this novel is one of those. But that's the thing is that we really can't fathom how good heaven will be, even if we know the goodnesses of heaven on earth. And we have no idea just how hellish hell will be, Mm. even if we see the worst, most hellish things on earth. And so... You know, Fedor Pavlovich is that, like, 
the sponger. He, he's sponging off of the goodness of God on earth, but he mm-hmm. has eternity of hell. Really, I mean, we already see him die in the novel. So, uh, and Zosima, on on the on the other hand, has experienced the hells on earth, you know, and and, and is is transported, you know, into the 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 glory of heaven, even within the pages of the book. And what I think is so special about it is that even though these are two central figures to the novel, Alyosha actually gets to experience, like Zosima has, he's finished his race, but, but Alyosha gets that strength to keep running his race in part because his dad dies. And, you know, someone whose dad has also passed away, you know, I, I think that that's a huge test to people is when they lose a parent. And, you know, my, you know, my pity is there in, in deep, deep, uh, you know, capacity for those that lose children. Because I think that that's even, even another level of, of test of faith. Um, but I can certainly say that my faith grew more in the trial of losing my dad, you know, than probably anything before that and few things since that. Um, and, and here Alyosha is, at the end of the novel, with a strengthening faith, getting to that level of Zosima where he can be the Zosima for Kolya. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's, I don't know where Gosevsky would have taken it, but I think he's setting it up that Kolya is, is like, he's not as far apart in age, mm-hmm. but I think he is that, it, it's like Alyosha is... is carrying forth the faith of the fathers to the next generation and and you know with Dostoevsky's idealism I, I think or optimism I think he was really seeing like there's a possibility that Russia can come back to a national faith mm-hmm. and be basically the way that America has thought of itself in in the 20th and maybe part of the 21st century as like the inheritor of the of the the, the Israel uh, like the chosen land, you know, the promised land. Um, and so, it, you know, it's interesting that, like, Russia is still trying to, to fathom that in 2022. Um, and, and, of course, America just seems to be abandoning that. Um, but I think that there's, there's wisdom in it and there's also, like, limitedness in it. And so, um, you know, similarly with, with Zosima and Fedor Pavlovich, I think that they're not the be-all, end-alls. Fyodor Pavlovich is not the evilest person that's ever lived, nor is Osama the, the most faithful person that's ever lived. But their, uh, it, uh, their embodiments, just like we talked about in the first episode, Dostoevsky is embodying these things into characters mm. because they're representative of things that human beings deal with. And they have the capacity to go different ways, which I appreciate. They're not just born like that and that's it. Like, you know how Alyosha tells his father, um, you don't have a, a bad nature, but it's distorted. Um, we even see Zosima having some conceited, selfish, arrogant tendencies in his youth, but his nature gets sort of untwisted and undistorted by God. Even Kolya, I'm glad you brought up Kolya, um, because Alyosha's going to tell Kolya, you have a charming nature, though it's been distorted. It's very similar to what he says to his father. He says, you, you have um, so much potential for good, but for Kolya, he's been distorted by the influence of Smirnikov and Rakitin, who are 
the two worst characters in the novel, I would say. So he had the potential to become another Fyodor Pavlovich when he grew up, like just a very corrupted person. But instead, thankfully, he seems to have taken on kind of spiritual fathership, you know, sonship from Alyosha instead and had to have rejected those other influences. And I, I wanted to mention briefly about Zosima and the, the visitor who is considering confessing that when the man tells him, decide my fate, um, this is what Zosima says to him. Go and proclaim, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit that epigraph again, that you will suffer if you do this and you will, you may literally die if they, uh, you know, find you guilty and execute you. Um, you may just figuratively feel as if you're dying, you, you know, you're losing everything, but you can't transcend the dark place you find yourself in now, unless you're willing to die, you're willing to suffer, you're to trust, trust God with the suffering and the man says, that's true. It's terrible, the things you find in those books <laughs> about Scripture. And he says, who wrote them? And Zosima says, the Holy Spirit wrote them. And so, you know, I think that, that was a good place to, you know, to wrap it up for this one since we just crossed the two-hour mark. Um, but we're, we're looking forward to talking about the, the brothers, Karamazov, and at the same time, you know, I mentioned this on the first episode, this is a novel about fatherhood and about who do you claim as your parentage and also who are you, uh, like, um, at the mercy of genetics for, you know, that, that um, these are all Karamazovs, Ivan, uh, Dmitry Ivan and, and uh, Alexei, Alyosha, um, and yet... Really, they're not just their father's children. They're also their mother's children. Obviously, Alexei, Alyosha, is Zosima's spiritual child or grandchild. Um, and so just thinking about that, like, it, it, it just puts that thought in my heart. Like, who, who am I helping to develop spiritually the same way that I'm trying to help Josephine develop intellectually, spiritually, and physically. Um, and, and, you know, I think that Whitney makes a good point, which is like the more you know of God, the more you see how how much love he has for people, the more you want to have a million children. You want to have, you know, it's like that's part of why we do what we do is like we teach so that we can show the goodness of God to more people than just Josephine because there's something about it that's like, this is too good to only share with one person. While at the same time, if we don't share it with Josephine, no matter how many people we we share Christ with or show Christ to or encourage Christ in, it will be very dissatisfying because God has given us Josephine. In a special way, yeah. it's this eternal ideal that everyone belongs to everyone else in exactly the same way mm-hmm. that's equal it's a heavenly idea. Uh-huh. It's right now we have been given a special responsibility for our own husband and children, which is part of why Zosima tells that peasant woman, 
you need to go back home to your husband. I know that you're hurting because you lost your child, but you're responsible for your husband in a special way to the point where even going on a pilgrimage is not as important as being back at home with your husband because he's going to be tempted to like drink himself into oblivion out of grief. Yes. And, and I think that, you know, for some people that lose, like let's say you like lose your whole family in an accident, well, sometimes God might allow that to happen to you so that you can be the recipient of so much love from other people because they they don't know how to give it to you in an overwhelming way because basically you have this like buffer zone of your family. But if you were to lose all that, what, you know, who knows what kind of love might come your way. And if it doesn't, that's on the fault of the, the people that know you. It's not on you. You know, it's not on you if you've lost your loved ones. But that's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow is like when I, when my dad passed away, I received a ton of love from people that loved me all along, but it was like now was their chance to really show me. And for that, I'm, you know, I'm going to be grateful the rest of my life. And, 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 and so in being grateful, I try to do the same for others. And, and, um, like I just think about people that called me the day that my dad, you know, that I shared that my dad had died and it was people who's, who had lost a parent. And it was like, that was something that was unique to them, and they knew how much it meant when they heard from someone who had lost a parent before them. And so, you know, I talked to someone at church uh, who lost his father last year, and, and I was like, you know, this is a hard, this is a hard fraternity to be in, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to show some love to you and to encourage you and just say I'm with you, you know, in, in this grief. Um, and that's, I think that's, if Fyodor Pavlovich would have allowed someone to love him, which I think he tries to allow Alyosha to love him, mm-hmm. but it takes so much vulnerability when you have lost something, even if it's long in the past, to be able to say, I'm going to let someone love me. But I think Zosima is a good example of like, he allowed his brother to love him who passed away mm-hmm. long after that fact by like, teaching him things about the, the things that he was saying before he died, like finally kind of came to fruition for Zosima in, in this situation with his, um, with this man that had, had like committed murder. And so, you know, with that, we'll, we'll pause for now and, and come back for Ivan, Ivan, uh, Pavlov, uh, uh, Fyodorovich uh, Karamazov in the next episode. We're looking forward to talking to you then. Bye-bye.